Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open right to the middle, Psalm 119, verse 9 to verse 16. This is week 2 out of 22 in a walk through the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. I just want to start with a few basics. Most of these things I said last week, I'm not going to repeat them 22 Sundays in a row, but just as we get into the opening parts of Psalm 119, it's good to make sure that we're all on the same page. Psalm 119 is one long, giant poem. It's an acrostic poem, and it's an acrostic poem built on or based on the Hebrew alphabet in the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 stanzas. Each stanza devoted to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And last week we looked at the Aleph section. This week we look at the Beit section. And just to sort of give you a visual of this, you can see up at the top of the screen, that's verse 8, that's where we left off. And the first letter of the first word in that last verse where we left off is an Aleph. And then you have all these Beits right down here through verse 16, and then you can look ahead to verse 17, and you can see next week we'll be in the Gimel, or the Gimel section of Psalm 119. So we're just moving through the Hebrew alphabet. Obviously, the psalmist wrote the psalm this way to sort of give you a trigger in your mind. Many times, if you're reciting a Bible verse that you've learned, you just need a prompt, you need a word or two, and then it can sort of get rolling and flow right off your tongue. So that's what you see in Psalm 119. There's 176 verses. Almost every verse in this longest chapter of the Bible makes some reference to the Bible. And there's 8, 9, 10 words basically used interchangeably. And you can see some of them listed here. Law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commands, rules, word, promise. All of these words used more or less interchangeably to refer to God's Word. God's spoken word, the written word of Scripture. So that's the subject that we're dealing with in Psalm 119. One of the things I mentioned last week is particularly important this morning, and it's the basic idea that God speaking to the Hebrew people set them apart as unique from all of the other peoples on the earth. And you see this in the life of Abraham, you see this in the life of Israel. Uh, as they're coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land, Deuteronomy 4, you see it as Israel established as a nation. One of the key things that set them apart was that God, the one true living God, had spoken to them. And God's word set them apart. And I just want to make the obvious note as we look at this bait section this morning that the idea of being set apart in the Bible is the idea of holiness. That's the root idea of holiness. When we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is set apart. He's different than us. He's unique and, and completely set apart from everything in creation. That's the idea of holiness. And holiness is the theme of this second section of Psalm 119. The big idea is simple. The Word of God is essential to our growth in holiness. The Word of God is essential to our growth in holiness. You see this in verse 9, which is a familiar verse to many of you, and then you see it explained in the rest of the section. So take your copy of the Scriptures and let's read Psalm 119, verse 9 to verse 16. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Lord God, we stop this morning and we acknowledge your holiness. We're thankful for the scriptures that teach us that you are holy, holy, holy. And Lord, as we acknowledge your holiness, we stop to confess our sinfulness. We're thankful that your word is honest with us about the fact that we, left to ourselves apart from your grace, are not holy. And so we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son who lived for us and died for us. We thank you for the gift of salvation and we thank you for the gift of your spirit who lives in us. Father, we pray that you would make us a holy people, a people committed to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know we're talking about holiness this morning, but I want to start off with some basic ideas relating to economics and buying and selling. And I just want to acknowledge that there are some things in life that are not easy to sell. There are things in life, different times, places, circumstances that are hard to sell. For example, in the age of Google and Facebook and the internet, it's increasingly hard to sell yellow page ads. People come to the church from time to time and they say, hey, I'd like to sell you a yellow page ad. And we said, have you heard of Google? And they say, hey, we have a yellow page app. And I say, is it called Google? That's a hard sell. It's a tough sell. Uh, It's hard to sell. I know we're an oil part of the country and gas and all that stuff, but if you know somebody who owns a Tesla, it's hard to sell gas to that person unless maybe they're fueling their generator to charge their Tesla or something like that, but that can be a hard sell. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been warm this summer in Odessa. There's not been a lot of coats being sold over the last few months, not a lot of people going out to buy woolen mittens. Now, My phone says, I don't believe it, my phone says the high temperature tomorrow is in the low 90s. And so you might need a coat tomorrow. After being acclimated to 108, 110, you might need to get the mittens out. But that's a hard sell in West Texas in the heat of the summer. Those are difficult things to sell. Uh, If you think for five minutes about what Americans really buy and sell, I think it's pretty obvious It's true that we buy products and we buy gadgets and we buy services and you can be very, very specific. But I think if you just step back and look at commercials, I think Americans are being sold basically four things. Uh, Beauty, and under the category of beauty, I would include health and wellness and fitness and long life and all of those sorts of things. Technology, which is really somebody trying to sell you power or control over something. And then sort of a a combination of experiences and adventure. We don't try to sell people Lincolns anymore. We sell you the adventure that you'll have as you're driving 
the Lincoln. And most commercials sort of boil down to this. This is what Americans are interested in buying, and this is what companies are trying to sell. Do you know what companies are not trying to sell Americans? Holiness. Not a lot of people trying to sell holiness, and truth be told, not a lot of people interested in buying holiness. And this is not just secular companies and CEOs in the boardroom and marketing firms. This is also filtered down to our churches. There's not a lot of churches today across the broad landscape of church in North America, not a lot of churches that are trying to sell holiness to their people. Do you know why? Because they know that people are not interested in buying holiness. And so they try to sell them essentially these things. External appearances, uh, technology shows, lights, performances, all the rest, uh, adventures. You look at the, the common names for most churches, they sound very exciting. Hey, I go to Journey Church. We're going on a journey. Well, that sounds very exciting. Come on a journey with me. People are, are selling what Americans want to buy, and that's true even in the church world. It's not a surprise to any of us that churches would be influenced, or it should not be a surprise that churches would be influenced by secular marketing techniques. That's absolutely the case. My question as we begin this morning is why? Forget Ford Motor Company and forget Disney and forget all the commercials you see on TV, secular businesses. I just want to ask the question, why? Why are Christians not interested in buying holiness? And why are churches not trying to sell it to their people? You understand I'm using the word sell with, with air quotes here, not talking about an exchange of money, but why are churches so hesitant to talk about holiness and what the Bible says about personal holiness in our lives, and why are American churchgoers so disinterested in this? I think it boils down to two simple reasons. I think, number one, we have bad theology, and number two, we have bad soteriology. That is, we have a poor, impoverished, impoverished doctrine of God. That's theology. Who is God? We've sold God short. And we have a poor, impoverished not fully formed doctrine of soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. We don't understand the truth about who God is, and we don't understand the nature of biblical salvation. We have reduced God to a kind, benevolent grandpa in the sky who just wants us to be happy and nice to each other. And we've reduced salvation to an intellectual decision that you need to make in your brain in a rote prayer that you need to repeat. And as a consequence of those things, yes, we could talk about the influence of, of the, the world and its marketing techniques, but I'm saying within the church, because of those two errors, we're really not all that interested in holiness. And so I promise we're going to get to Psalm 119 in a minute, but first I want to do something tough, and I want to try to sell you holiness. And I'm not asking you to open your wallet and fork over money in exchange for holiness. But I just want to talk to you about the importance of holiness in my life, in your life, in the life of our church, and in your family. 
I want to talk to you about the importance of holiness by maybe offering some corrections. Not everything we could say, but a few things that we ought to say about theology and soteriology, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation. So, why should we want to grow in holiness? Number one, because God's holy. That may seem very elementary and very basic to you, but that's basic biblical logic 101. 1 Peter chapter 1 quotes the Old Testament book of Leviticus. This is a, a book at the very end of the New Testament, quoting a book at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And in 1 Peter, we read these words, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's biblical logic. God says to his people, I want you to be holy people because I am a holy God. How holy is he? Well, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 say that he's holy, holy, holy. He is supremely, infinitely, amazingly holy. The highest amount of holy, that's what God is. And as a consequence, as a result, he calls his people to be holy. God wants his people to be like him. You don't need Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 1 Peter and Leviticus to figure that out. You just need to read the book of Genesis. In the opening chapters of the Bible, when God creates everything, He creates male and female, man and woman, distinct and different and set apart from everything else that He made. He creates people in His image. Genesis says, in His image likeness. He wanted people to be like him in a certain sense. What did Satan say? What did the serpent say in the garden to Adam and Eve? Questioned the word of God. Did God really say this? No, this isn't going to happen to you. And the serpent looked at Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of this tree, you will what? Be like God. What a ridiculous temptation. I mean, what a foolish thing to offer the two creatures in all of the universe who were already like God. I mean, that could have been the end of it. Adam and Eve could have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're already like God. What do you mean we will be like God? We're like Him now. We're created in His image. Do you understand what the serpent put in front of the man and the woman was a path to being God-like that circumvented God. And it went around God's word. And it took a, an end run around God's will and what God had commanded his people to do and who he had commanded them to be. And Adam and Eve believed it, and human beings have been believing it ever since. Human beings have believed ever since that we can define ourselves and our lives in the ultimate purpose in our life. We can just live to self-actualize. We can live to be self-fulfilled uh, and we can seek our, create our own purpose and our own meaning and our own values and our own destiny and we're just empowered to create all of these things and it's one of the most basic, demonic, satanic lies in all of the world. Because in the beginning, the holy God created people to be like Him, to be holy. God is holy, so we ought to be holy. So why are we uninterested in holiness? Number one, we don't understand the truth about who God is. First Peter and Leviticus help us in that direction. 
Number two, we don't understand what salvation is. And I want to be very careful in how we talk about this. I'm going to get to the blanks in a minute. I know you guys like blanks. You want to get to those next three. I'm getting there. I just want to say something to you first. What we've done in the United States is we have reduced the miracle of salvation. And it is a miracle from beginning to end. We have reduced it and truncated it down and pared it off so that it is only a decision that a person makes in their brain and words that they repeat with their mouth. You see this at camps. You see it at quote-unquote revival meetings. You see it with posts on the internet over and over and over and over again. We've reduced it down to just merely a decision. Now, this is, this is what I want to say. If you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, there most certainly a thousand percent is a decision right in front of you. Will you listen to the Word of God when it talks about God's holiness? Will you listen to the Word of God when it talks about your sinfulness? Will you listen to the Word of God when it says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins? And will you listen to the word of God when it calls you to repent and to believe? And will you do those things right now? Not in 15 minutes at the end of the service, not by walking up front, not by getting in that baptistry. Will you do it right now? Will you say, God, I repent of my sin. I agree with you about my sin problem. And I'm putting my faith in the perfect, in the finished, in the complete work of your son, Jesus Christ. If you have never made that decision, by all means, we urge you to make it right now. And we say to you on full biblical authority that when a person makes that decision, empowered by the grace of God, when a person makes that decision, their sins are forgiven, and they receive eternal life. Not just when they die and go to heaven, but they receive eternal life right now today. And the forgiveness of sins and eternal life can be yours if you will respond to the gospel right now, today. So there most certainly is a decision in front of you. But what I'm saying to you is the Bible says a lot more about our salvation than simply this issue of a decision. And because we're so simplistic when it comes to salvation and we boiled it down to this idea of a decision, we miss the biblical teaching about salvation. And one of the consequences is we're not interested in holiness. So let me just mention three parts of our salvation that ought to give you an interest, a growing interest in holiness. Why should we want to grow in holiness? How about this? Because of the miracle of regeneration. The miracle of regeneration. I'm going to leave you to read some of these verses so that we can get to Psalm 119. But in Ezekiel 36, the prophet promised a day when God would take out his people's heart of stone and he would give them a heart of flesh and that the result of God doing that miracle in their lives is that they would walk in his commandments. They would be a holy people. The Bible talks about this in other places 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about God making us new, new creations. The old is gone. The old desires are being replaced with new desires. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. It's the miracle of regeneration or new birth. Why should we want to grow in holiness? How about the certainty of sanctification? The absolute certainty of sanctification in our lives. 
Justification is a declaration that God makes when a sinner repents and believes. When, when a sinner is converted, God justifies that sinner. He declares that that man or that woman or that boy or that girl who is a sinner, he declares that they are righteous, not on their own merit, but on the merit of his son, Jesus Christ. And God makes a declaration. He justifies us. But what the New Testament says is justification is tied to sanctification. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul tells the, the church in Corinth, your lives used to be marked by all manner of sin, but you were justified and you were washed and you were sanctified. Those things go together. Uh, Paul tells the church in, in Philippi, God is still at work in you. He's going to finish the work that he started in you. And he's at work in you now so that you would will and work for his good pleasure. So that you would be a holy people. Justification is a declaration. Sanctification is a process. But it's a process that's tied to justification. There's no biblical category for somebody who's been justified who hasn't at least turned the corner and begun the process of sanctification. Are we all in the same part of sanctification? No. Do we move at constant rates of growth in sanctification? No. Is there a magical formula we can bottle and sort of microwave sanctification? Of course not. But it's a process that begins in the life of his people, a process by which we put sin to death and we become more Christ-like and we become sanctified. Literally, we become more holy. So there's the miracle of regeneration. There's the certainty of sanctification. What about the hope of glorification? Glorification is the final step in the process of God working salvation in the lives of his people. It happens when you die and you go to be with the Lord, or it will happen for all of God's people who are left on the earth when Christ returns. It's this twinkling of an eye where we're fully and finally conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't mean that we're equal to Christ, but we see Him and we become like Him. The book of Romans promises us that the people... That God started to work salvation in their lives in eternity past. All of those people will have glorification worked in their life in the end. Every last one of them. When God begins the process of salvation before the foundation of the world, He brings it to completion in the lives of His people. He glorifies them. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, You ought to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is required of people who want to be in the presence of a holy God. In the end, you'll get there when you're glorified. God will see to it. But in the meantime, the author of Hebrews says you ought to strive for that holiness. I understand the world isn't selling holiness. And I understand churches aren't selling it. But the Bible's selling it for God's people. You understand, nobody is selling you holiness so that you can get into heaven one day. Nobody said that, right? Nobody said you better be really good and mind your spiritual P's and Q's and follow all the rules or God's going to be angry with you and you're not going to have a place. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's talking about a works-based system of salvation. Nobody's saying you have to earn your way with God. What we're saying is you should be holy because God's holy. And you should care about holiness because of the salvation that God has worked 
and is working and will work in the lives of His people. Holiness. Now let's get to Psalm 119 and let's ask the question, how? How does the psalmist want the people of God to relate to the Word of God so that we might grow in holiness? Number one, the psalmist wants us to recognize the authority of God's Word. Look at verse 10. This is an idea we talked about last week. The psalmist says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Holiness requires the whole of us. With my whole heart I seek you. The world's filled with half-hearted people. Churches are filled with half-hearted Christians. People who can sing, Lord, I give you control of my life when you're in this room, but when you leave this room, you take it back. That's being half-hearted. Churches are filled with people who want to seek God on Sunday mornings between the hours of 8.30 and 12.30. But the rest of the week, they live their lives as if God really didn't exist, or if He does exist, He's really not interested in our lives at all. The world's filled with half-hearted people. In all manner of things, churches are filled with half-hearted Christians in a million different ways. And the psalmist is saying, you're looking for holiness in my life, so what I want to do is I want to seek you with my whole heart. And the way that I want to do that is I do not want to wander from your commandments. Look what he says in verse 12. Blessed are you, Lord, teach me your statutes. He wants to be taught by God. Now, that seems like a very Sunday school thing to say. I want God to teach me. But I'm just telling you, in my experience in talking with people about the Bible and theology and doctrine, I think many times people approach the Bible not to be taught by God, not to have their thoughts about God shaped by the Scriptures, but simply to find proof for what they already believe. They start with an idea and they say, oh, that's in the Bible, right? That's in there somewhere. Where is that at? Let me look, let me look. And they look and they search and they, they're looking for something that will verify what they already believe rather than coming to the Scriptures and saying, God, I need you to teach me and I need you to shape what I think. And God, what I think might be wrong. And if it's wrong, I need you to shape it. Do you ever change your mind about doctrine? Or are you the one person who has it all figured out perfectly? I read a book just a few weeks ago. It's by a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University named Matt Emerson. The book is called He Descended to the Dead, An Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. The book deals with what happened to Jesus between his death and his resurrection. Now, parts of it are kind of academic, and there was parts that I thought, man, this is really stretching me and making me think. But you know what? I came away re from reading this book, and I thought to myself, I've been wrong about this. I had an idea in my head. I don't know where it came from, but I had it in my head, and I had some misunderstandings in my head. And as I walked through the Scriptures with Emerson in this book, I came to the realization, I think I'm wrong. 
on this. Now, this is not the most central, critical piece of Christian doctrine that you could ever you could ever deal with. This is not like we are a Baptist church, next week we're going to be a Methodist church, anything like that. So rest easy. But I'm just saying to you, I read the book and I thought, you know, I'm wrong. It's not just that he's so convincing, it's that he pointed me to the Scriptures and I read the Scriptures and I say, well, that doesn't match what's in my head. And I keep trying to fit it into what's in my head and it just doesn't fit. I'm trying to take this round peg and shove it in a square hole and it's not going to work. What about any other range of issues that you might be thinking about as a believer? What about what the Bible says about creation or gender or marriage or sexuality? What about what the Bible has to say about the character of God or our sinfulness? How bad are we? How bad is our sinful condition, our depravity? What, what about what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God over all things, everything, all of it? What about what the Bible says about the nature of the atonement? What happened on the cross or the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, the life that we sang about earlier? What about what the Bible says about hell? Are you willing to take your beliefs and submit them to the Word of God and to say, God, I need you to teach me and shape the things that I believe Or are you just coming to the Bible with your preconceived ideas, searching desperately, frantically for a verse that will give some credence to your position? He's wholehearted. He's not half-hearted. He doesn't come to the Bible and say, well, I like this, but the book of Joshua, that's tough. So I'm going to pass on Joshua. I like this book, but I don't like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about how men and women ought to relate to each other. I like the rest of the book. It's really nice, but I don't like that part. No, he's wholehearted. He's seeking God wholeheartedly, and he's asking God to teach him. So number one, he wants us to recognize the authority of God's Word. How does a psalmist want the people of God to relate to the Word of God? Number two, he wants us to memorize and meditate on the Word. Verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's just Bible memorization. I've stored it up in my heart so that I might not sin against you, so that I might pursue holiness. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I could grow in holiness and not sin against you. Now look, I've been a pastor long enough to know that when you start to talk to people about memorizing Scripture, most people say, yeah, I'm just not good at that. That's not my thing. I tried that. I had the little cards didn't work for me. It's really not, I'm not good at memorizing things. Really. You're not good at memorizing things. Let me just put a few quotes up on the screen and let's test your memory. Tombstone. Doc Holliday. Don't act like you don't know. I'm your... Oh, you memorized that line. Very good. One for one. What about Forrest Gump? Don't, look, don't pretend, don't throw your hands in the eye. I didn't. You all saw Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of, yes, not Sour Patch Kids, chocolates. You know it. And you never know. Oh, you memorized that line too. Very good. Two for two. Okay, let's keep going. Martin Luther King Jr. I have a... 
Oh, he had a dream. That one wasn't even in a movie, and you know that one. Let's look at a few more. Maybe these came from your mom. Actions speak louder than... How did you know that? You're on a roll. Thought you couldn't memorize things. Next, don't judge a book by its cover. Next, it's no use crying over spilled milk. Not one of you said orange juice. Nobody. Everybody knows. Absence makes the heart grow. You guys memorize a lot of things. I bet we could get in the truck or the car or pull your phone out. I bet you could pull up your favorite Apple Music, Spotify, whatever you listen to music on, CDs, cassettes, I don't care. And I bet we could pull up your favorite genre, your favorite era, and I bet we could play songs that you haven't heard in a long time, and those songs would come on, and what would happen? You just start singing along, you know the words. All of the songs we're singing this morning in, in Big Church are really old songs. And maybe you didn't grow up in church and you don't know them, but I bet when we started these songs, you thought, oh, no, that's an interesting pick. That's kind of an oldie, but a goodie. And maybe you didn't remember every single word perfectly. Maybe you needed to cheat off the screen a little bit, but I bet as we got going, some of those words came back to you. Memorization. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. For most of us, the problem is not an inability to memorize. It's an unwillingness to meditate. Notice what the psalmist says. We read verse uh, 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Look what he says in verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Do you know how many times I've watched the movie Tombstone? Probably a hundred times. That's meditating. Meditation, biblically, is not emptying your mind of anything and everything. It's filling your mind with something. When he says he's going to meditate on God's Word, he's trying to fill it with God's Word. We had over a hundred adults and youth help with Vacation Bible School just a couple of weeks ago. Do you know what we did at the beginning of every day at VBS and the end of every day at VBS? We meditated on three songs over and over and over. And some of you, I'm not going to play the video, but just by putting this picture up on the screen, you're having flashbacks right now. And you're singing the song in your head, and you're like, I remember that one. It gets stuck in my head. I sang it all week. And do you know what? We could probably go a whole year Next year, VBS, I could throw this song on the screen, and those of you who are here this last year, you would pick right up. Why? It's because you spent a week meditating on it, filling your mind with it. And the psalmist says, I'm going to meditate on your word, and I'm going to memorize your word. How does the psalmist want the people of God to relate to the word of God? Number three, he wants us to respond to the word with worship and witness. Worship and witness. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Look what he says in verse 13. With my lips, I will declare all the rules of your mouth. With my lips, I will declare all of the rules 
of your mouth. This is a good point for me to remind you what I said earlier, that these words for God's word, rules, commands, laws, precepts, they're more or less used interchangeably. So when he says, I'm going to declare all the rules, he's not saying, I'm going to walk around and quote the Ten Commandments all day. What he's saying is, I'm going to talk about your word. It's going to be on my lips. In worship, when the people of God gather together, we're going to read the scripture, we're going to sing songs inspired by the scripture, we're going to open this book and talk about the scripture, and then we're going to respond to God in prayer and talk to him about what he said to us in the scriptures. The scriptures are going to be at the center of our worship when we gather together. And then when we scatter, the word of God's going to be on our lips as witnesses. You watched a video just a minute ago from the International Mission Board. We, as Southern Baptists, work together through the International Mission Board to send missionaries out. But you understand, this is not an outsourcing of missions. This is not a, we're going to gather here and do our thing. Y'all go out there and do the missions thing. This is, at the end of that video, it said, It's your mission, and it's our mission. This is not just for missionaries. It's for Christians who gather together, and the Word of God is on our lips as we worship, and then we scatter, and the Word of God is on our lips as we witness. Lastly, how does the psalmist want the people of God to relate to the Word of God? He wants us to delight in the Word. To delight in the Word of God. I jumped the gun. I read verse 14 a minute ago, but we'll read it again in the way of your testimonies. I delight as much as in all riches. I delight in the Word of God as much as I delight in a giant pile of money. Look what he says in verse 16. There's the word delight again. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. If you read Psalm 119, or any other psalm. It's remarkable how often the book of Psalms tells us that we ought to feel a certain thing. It goes completely against the wisdom of our world. You're just going to have to decide, am I going to hold on to the wisdom of the world or am I going to let the Word of God teach me? Because the Word of God in the book of Psalms over and over and over again tells you to feel certain things. And our culture says you can't control your emotions. All you can do is express them. Or you can repress them, and that's harmful for you. You can repress them or you can express them, but those are the only two options. And the Bible says, no, you actually ought to feel certain things. We're commanded, we're called to feel certain things. And the call in this verse is to delight in the Word of God, to find joy and happiness in God's Word. So last week, just very quickly, we mentioned a phrase that sometimes gets thrown around in churches that God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. Christians feel like they need to say things like this because the world's not buying or selling holiness. And they're trying to course correct and say, wait a minute, God actually does care about holiness. And we've seen that in this bait section of Psalm 119. Absolutely, God cares about our purity and our holiness. But the very same section says that He cares about our delighting and our joy and our happiness and our emotions And I'm just suggesting to you again that this is not the most helpful way to talk about God and what He wants to do in our lives. I think a better thing to say would be God knows that true happiness comes through holiness. 
And he cares about both of those things. The holiness of his people, which he knows will result in the ultimate happiness of his people. I will delight in the word of God. The catch-22 in this is that most people say, if they're honest, they don't like to say it in a church building. They don't like to say it to pastors. But if they're honest, they say, I don't really delight in God's word. And I'm waiting, I'm I'm waiting for this feeling to come on me so that then I can do all the things that you talked about this morning, the memorizing, the meditating, the submitting to the authority, the worshiping, and the witnessing. But right now, I just don't really delight in it, if I'm honest. It's okay if that's your position this morning. It's okay if that's your position in two weeks. What you have to understand is that the Bible calls us to be people who walk by faith and not by sight. And what you ought not do is say, I'm going to wait for some emotion to take hold of me before I do all of these other things. I don't think that's how obedience and our emotions usually work in any area of life. And I think a much better approach would be to start off with the recognition that God is holy and He cares about the holiness of His people. And God is working salvation in our lives in a miraculous way so that holiness is something that we care about. And that God's Word is central. It is essential to our growth in holiness. And you ought to set yourself about the process, regardless of your emotion today or tomorrow or the next day, of submitting to the authority of God's Word, of memorizing and meditating on God's Word, in worshiping with the people of God gathered around the Word of God, in witnessing to the truth of God's Word when you leave this place. And I think that if you do that, at some point, I'm not saying to you it's a magical formula, but I'm saying to you the result of a commitment to do those things, one of these days you're going to wake up and you're going to say, I delight in this. God's doing a work in me and He's growing me. And I've been obedient because of who He is and the the grace that He's poured into my life. And you'll find yourself delighting in the Word of God. I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. Father, this morning we're grateful to be able to gather around the scriptures and to read Psalm 119. Father, give us a recognition this morning of your holiness. Help us to accept the truth about our sinfulness and our need for grace. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth about salvation and what you're working in our lives. We pray that we would be people and families and a church families committed to your word. That we would submit to its authority with our whole heart. That you would teach us. That we would meditate on it. Not just when we meet in this room, but that we would meditate on your word. We would fill our minds with your word and that as a result, you would help us to memorize it. That we might not sin against you. God, make us people of worship. Make us people of witness. And we pray that you would make us people who delight in your word. Father, we're grateful for your goodness in speaking to us. We're grateful that we live in a place where we have such open and easy access to your word. 
Lord, help us to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.